This is Frankly Speaking by Friends of Europe, an independent think tank with a difference. Frankly Speaking is your go-to on all things peace, security and defense. Original content, original thought. In the United States, the House of Representatives is still recovering from not having a speaker for more than two weeks. This means that the House is essentially paralyzed until someone is chosen. In the Middle East, conflict has again exploded with an ongoing war in Israel and Palestine. This has shifted everyone's attention away from Ukraine, as leaders who were once lining up to visit Kyiv are now flocking to Israel. I'm Katerina Villanova, host of Frankly Speaking, and joining me today is Rachel Rizzo, Senior Fellow at the Atlantic Council, and Paul Taylor, Senior Fellow at Friends of Europe. Rachel, Paul, welcome, and thank you so much for joining me today in Frankly Speaking. Thank you for having me. So, Rachel, as we are recording this episode, the U.S. House of Representatives still doesn't have a speaker. However, as we know, this might change in just a couple of hours if Jim Jordan manages to rally enough votes from uh, their Republican ranks. Rachel, tell us, what will a House of Representatives led by Jordan look like in terms of continued support for Ukraine? Well, I think what we've seen over the last, I would say, six, seven, eight months is a shift in rhetoric coming from the Republican Party in terms of how the U.S. should support Ukraine, um, for how long we should support Ukraine, putting pressure on the Biden administration to more clearly lay out what our ultimate goals are uh, for this support. And what we've seen is that this these questions have been led by a small but loud coterie of hard right uh, members of the Republican Party, like Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert, who are really trying to usher in a new type of conservatism, one that is much more skeptical of the Washington, D.C. elites, as they say, one that is much more populist in their approach to both uh, foreign and domestic policy. Um, and they've done a really good job, actually, of tying our foreign policy to domestic issues. You know, we like to talk about whether or not these folks in the Republican Party really care about um, stymieing support for Ukraine, or if they're really just trying to do this so that they can get a, a, a deal for the U.S. southern border. Uh, it's probably the latter, if, if we're being honest. Um, so what that means is that I think Jim Jordan is going to be in sort of a tough spot. I mean, he's a Ukraine skeptic himself, but you still have a pretty solid majority of Republicans and Democrats who support uh, long-term financial assistance, military aid, uh, and weaponry to Ukraine. Uh, but as we've seen, things are really complicated on Capitol Hill right now. Uh, and so there's really no saying, I think, where we might be in six, seven, eight months. Um, public opinion, I, I think, is is turning a little bit as well. And so that's something that they also have to contend with. So you don't think that um, the scenario that you just uh, laid out for us will be very different if it's Jim Jordan's or any other Republican speaker elected? Well, I, I think the really tough part here is that when former Speaker Kevin McCarthy was running for his speakership last January, I think it was like 15 rounds of voting he went exactly through. 15. And, and in, in order to get votes from people who were holding out, 
he changed House rules. And one of those rules that he changed was that any one member of Congress could force a motion to vacate the speakership, which means that any person in that role is going to be under a ton of pressure to walk a really fine line between majority opinion in the Republican Party and in Congress uh, more generally, and with this smaller group of right-wingers who have the ability, just based on current House rules, to force a motion to vacate the Speaker. Um, So whatever that looks like, I mean, I think it's going to be really interesting to watch what happens over the next six or seven months. But if I was Zelensky and his team watching in Kyiv, um, and I've said this publicly before, I would be kind of nervous about what that means for continued support for Ukraine. Um, we're also heading into a, a what will be and what is already a pretty contentious U.S. presidential election. Um, and support for Ukraine is very much part of the conversation. So, Things are pretty complicated at the moment. Exactly. And speaking of that, how do you think that President Biden will be able to maintain support, uh, not only for Ukraine, but also for for Israel in the middle of this uh, congressional deadlock? Well, I think, you know, let's go back for a few years to when Biden first entered office. He and his team very much wanted to focus on the Indo-Pacific region, and they wanted to park Russia, as they said, sort of put guardrails on the relationship, make sure that it was stable and predictable. And that certainly hasn't happened. I think this wasn't said publicly, but they also sort of had a park the Middle East mentality. And as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, that really hasn't panned out either. So there's a lot of pressure, I think, on Biden and his team to balance all of these concurrent conflicts at the same time. And it does put pressure on both him, Antony Blinken, our secretary of state, his you know general foreign policy team. But it also makes his messaging for the campaign a little bit complicated as well. I think that probably in terms of Ukraine, what needs to happen sometime soon is there probably needs to be a speech by Biden to the American public laying out two years on of from Russia's full-scale invasion where we are, what the goals are. They've left those goals, I think, intentionally a little bit vague to allow for maneuver, which I think is probably the right approach. But at this point, I think the messaging to the American public on what is the ultimate outcome that we're looking for in Ukraine, that needs to be spelled out, I think, in a more, uh, in a clearer way. And so I would expect that to happen sometime soon, just given what has happened with uh, Israel and Hamas over the last couple of weeks, the looming threat of Iran getting involved, Hezbollah. I mean, all of these conflicts happening at the same time, I think, put a little bit more, not a little bit more, probably a lot more pressure on Biden to be more clear as to what the ultimate aims are in Ukraine. I want to go back to to that point a bit later in today's episode, but for now I want to come back to the our side of the Atlantic. Emmanuel Macron reaffirmed France's support for Ukraine to Zelensky. Uh, Macron assured the Ukrainian president that the proliferation of crisis would not weaken French and European support for Ukraine which will be there for as long as it takes. Of course, we all know what he was referring to here. Uh, Paul, do you see that the European Union is prepared to step up support for Ukraine if the U.S. fails to do so? Well, I think 
Katerina, that European support for uh, uh, Ukraine has not wavered in the same way as perhaps it has uh, in the US Congress, or, or at least has not fallen hostage yet to domestic politics in quite the same way. To be sure, we've had an election in Slovakia, which is going to bring to office uh, a government which is not in favor of aid uh, to Ukraine and particularly military supplies, but we've yet to see whether they will actually implement that policy, which was enunciated by the uh, opposition leaders during their successful election campaign. On the other hand, in Poland, we've seen a victory uh, for a coalition of opposition forces, which are very clearly pro-Ukraine, will continue the policy of supplying uh, arms to Ukraine, allowing Poland to be used as a hub for Western arms supplies to Ukraine. And so from that point of view, I would say that the, the U Ukraine support coalition has been, if anything, reinforced. The outgoing Polish government was very supportive too, until the election campaign turned nasty. And then they tried to pick up rural votes in particular by turning against Ukraine, by blocking unilaterally imports of Ukrainian grain and so on, uh, and getting into a, a public spat with uh, President Zelensky. Uh, that obviously didn't pay off electorally, and that's good news. That said, when we see the United States, the, the volume of military support that the United States has given, intelligence support, uh, weapons support, as well as uh, financial and economic support, I don't think that the European Union is in a position to replace that. And the European Union is not in a position, doesn't have the superpower credibility backed by nuclear deterrent that uh, really gets the attention of Russia in the same way or provides the same comfort to Ukraine. So I think that um, for both reasons, if the United States, in as much as the United States were to step back from supporting Ukraine, the European Union would not be able to fully fill that gap. And don't forget, we're going into a European election cycle next year as well, uh, with European Parliament elections in June, which may see, in May rather, which may see uh, uh, the victory of populists in some countries, and therefore the question of uh, how much European public support uh, for Ukraine might start to flag at that point, I think has to be in the back of everybody's minds. And if I were President Zelensky, I would also feel, be feeling a bit uncomfortable about that, as well as about uh, developments in Washington, notwithstanding what President Macron uh, said this week. Indeed, it's uh, looking ahead. It's a year uh, where elections will take place, very important elections. And uh, you were just uh, mentioning the Polish elections. And I think indeed uh, signs of relief could be heard across uh, across the continent with, uh, with the outcomes. However, I would like to point out that in this European landscape, Viktor Orban from Hungary is a clear outlier. He became just days ago the first European Union leader to shake hands with Putin since the start and the, of the invasion, and it's possible he might also rally the support of Slovakia, who we were talk, also mentioning and who had just won the elections. But how much of an actual dent do you think that these two leaders will be able to make in EU support for Ukraine if, as you were saying, you don't see that the support has been uh, uh, wavering? So I think that Orban so far has been an irritant, but not actually in the end an obstruction. Uh, he's uh, delayed uh, some uh, decisions on rounds of sanctions. Uh, he's managed to water down or carve out exceptions for Hungary in some cases, uh, for uh, Hungary, which is still very dependent on Russian oil and gas and nuclear fuels. But 
uh, he hasn't held up uh, the, the core, the body of European sanctions. And I think uh, Orban actually er emerges more isolated uh, from this month's elections than he does reinforced, because it's true he may have an emerging sidekick uh, in Slovakia, although I think that remains to be seen, because uh, in the past, uh, Fico was much more pragmatic uh, when in, in, in office than he was in his rhetoric. And he, uh, I think, uh, was always careful not to get too far offside. And uh, on the other hand, Orban has lost an ally in Warsaw who's been a partner in uh, resisting uh, the European Union's pressure on the rule of law and in resisting attempts to uh, use uh, withholding EU funds in order to force those countries to fall into line with European Court of Justice judgments and and to stop, as it were, the state takeover um, of the justice system and the political takeover of the justice system. So in that sense, I think Orban's had a bad election season so far uh, because he's the ultimate pragmatist. I think he will adjust uh, and will not uh, uh, go one up in, in supporting Putin. But clearly that picture of President Putin shaking hands with any of the EU leaders is galling for the EU and galling for the West and must be causing fury uh, in Kiev, and rightly so. And shifting the perspective, how much appetite do you think European citizens have left for a war with no end in sight, uh, Ukraine, of course, and with other conflicts calling everyone's attention? And in here, of course, I'm referring to the horrific attacks perpetrated by Hamas on Israel. That's a good question. I mean, the polling data so far shows that European support for Ukraine is holding up in public opinion, is not flagging, and that that support in the majority, uh, uh, support in, in most EU countries also covers the supply of arms. So um, I think that's encouraging. Uh, on the other hand, um, you could begin to see fatigue, especially uh, if populists are able to link the cost of living, which is hitting all Europeans in their pockets with uh, the Ukraine war and say it's because the, the Ukraine war is dragging on with our support uh, that oil prices, that uh, our, our energy bills are going up, that petrol costs two euros a gallon, a liter or more at the pump uh, and so on. To the extent that populists are able to exploit that issue in next year's election, it could certainly become problematic. On the other hand, You know, the, the, the European establishment, uh, let's say the mainstream parties of centre-left and centre-right, uh, the, the parties that will likely continue to make up uh, the majority in the European Parliament and have most of the positions in the European Commission, the European establishment is pretty solidly pro-Ukraine and not looking yet at any rate uh, for a, a, an exit strategy. So. Uh, the problem, I think, for President Zelensky is more in calculating uh, whether America might pull the plug rather than whether Europe might pull the plug. But given how important America is, President Zelensky must calculate that Europe will not be able to step up and fill America's shoes if a, a, a different American um, president were to pull the plug. And that means Ukraine needs to look for rapid progress for uh, uh, to be able to gain as much uh, in terms of both territory and weakening of uh, Russian forces as possible uh, uh, in the next uh, nine to 12 months.
Rachel, do you agree that Zelensky should be more concerned about uh, the US, as Paul just said, pulling the, the plug of support? Do you think that's where he should be concentrating his diplomatic efforts instead of, uh, of Europe? We all know that his uh, last visit to the United States was not as successful as the first one. I would agree. I think what we've seen over the last couple of years is that it really is the United States that has been holding together this Western coalition of not only support, but also sanctions against Russia. And if that starts to flag in the United States, I would agree that I don't think that the European Union or European member states would be able to make up for the loss of continued U.S. support. And so, again, I think it's going to be really important for Biden to message this correctly and I think probably more forcefully in the coming months to the American people. I, I think it's interesting that when you look back at the campaign that he ran, it was basically what he did was sort of try to speak to the better angels of the U.S. population. He said that we were fighting for the soul of the nation. And while I think that that is the right message, I don't think that that is what resonates with Americans. I think much more tangible evidence of why this support is important, of what a Russian victory would mean, not just for Europe, not just for Ukraine, most importantly, but also for the uh, international security order for the United States as well. I think this needs to be messaged uh, much more clearly in the coming months. And I, it would surprise me if we didn't see Biden doing that. And what you said was right. Zelensky's visit to the Hill last month was markedly different than his visit there only 10 months before. His first visit was, you know, obviously a joint, uh, an address to a joint session of Congress, which he requested yet again from former Speaker McCarthy and was denied, although that's not that surprising. It's kind of rare for you know a leader to have two uh, speeches to a joint session in just uh, 10 months for each other. But his first visit, you had members clamoring to get photos with him, wearing blue and yellow, waving Ukrainian flags. And you didn't see that this time. It was a much more subdued visit, one-on-one -on -one private conversations. And so if you can it's hard to draw, I think, meaningful conclusions from that. But if I was going to, I would say that it's clear that some members of Senate, of Congress, are a little bit concerned about what being pro-Ukraine means for their political futures. And the hope is that we can find a way to get that messaging correct so that support continues to hold. Indeed, I think it's much easier for us Europeans to understand the uh... The dimensions of this uh, of this conflict, if not for the geographical uh, locations, but how do you think that, from where you're standing, that uh, Hamas attack influenced, if at all, people's span of attention towards Ukraine? Do you feel that the uh, American people is somehow closer somehow to the to the conflict in Israel than to the war in Ukraine? I think I think so. If we're if if we have to sort of compare the two, I mean, they're very different conflicts. They're you know obviously I'm I'm someone that works on Europe, that works on NATO, that works on Russia, 
Israel and Palestine isn't something that I have spent decades or years working on like some other people in the U.S. foreign policy space. And so I think it's difficult for me to draw conclusions about what this might mean uh, long term for the region. But if you are looking at statements that have been made by leaders of the Biden administration, by members of Congress, it's clear that at least over the last couple of weeks, that is where the focus has shifted. It's been it's been felt in a much more acute way here in the United States, um, just because the relationship that the United States has with Israel and the the support that comes along with that and what that means for, you know, U.S. military spending, weapons deliveries, potentially, if we got to that point, um, how the United States can sort of balance its attention between multiple conflicts. All of those are discussions that we're having right now. But most certainly, uh, the attention has shifted a little bit not a little bit, actually pretty significantly from Ukraine to the Middle East region. And I think it will take some time to ascertain how that will end up balancing out in the long term. If the pendulum will swing back, if we'll find some sort of a middle ground, I think it's a little bit too early to say. Uh, final question to to both of you. Now that uh, Europe and America are both distracted uh, with Israel in the Middle East, how do you see that Putin will uh, play this to, to his advantage? Paul? Well, I think he's he's already doing so by re-emerging publicly in Beijing and getting uh, that that fantastic uh, handshake picture with uh, President Xi Jinping, which is on the front page of the, all the Russian newspapers today. He's obviously aware because he they they're very smart at the way that they play and follow European media. Uh, that for the moment the Middle East situation has completely wiped the, his war in Ukraine off the television screens and uh, newspapers of of, of Europe, uh, and that basically uh, it's all Middle East. On the other hand, I think he must also see that the United States is behaving like a superpower in a methodical and disciplined way. And the European Union has been the usual shambles of who says what and who goes where and different nuances of uh, gray in support for Israel and or the Palestinians, uh, at, while at the same time, the United States has been clearly on message in the administration. President himself, his secretaries of state and defense have gone to show their solidarity with Israel, at the same time, encourage Israel against seeking revenge um, trying to calm Israeli rage, working diplomatically to try and free the hostages uh, and to try and get humanitarian supplies into Gaza. And if very importantly, I think, is the, the signal to uh, Putin sending two aircraft carriers to the region to signal clearly that the United States, if necessary, is willing to use power in support of Israel. Now, the European Union has nothing comparable. And so from that point of view, you know, the United States behaving like a superpower behaves in these crises, I think, should be reassuring to Europeans and worrying to Russians. That said, you know, imagine a third crisis were to flare. Imagine that we were to get a renewed tension around Taiwan. It's not unimaginable. We've had two or three serious bouts there in the last 18 months. And imagine that a new Republican speaker as his first act were to uh, go on an official visit to Taiwan. And I'm making this up as I go along. But, you know, there, there are all sorts of ways in which this could get even more complicated for the West, for the United States and for Europe, and in which Ukraine could be a, a relative loser and Russia a relative beneficiary. 
I mean, I would agree with everything that you just said. It's such a complicated scenario. And you're right that if some sort of third conflict really started to flare, especially in the Indo-Pacific region, especially around Taiwan, that would put the United States in an even more difficult, potentially even impossible position. You know, we haven't really talked about the fact that our defense industrial base is under a lot of pressure too. We simply can't or haven't been able to produce the sort of ammunitions that we're sending to Ukraine as quickly as we need to. So the, the, the defense industry is feeling pressure as well. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned Putin and Xi because I think that sort of brings into the spotlight the different things that these two leaders need from the international system in order to function and in order to project power. You know, she very much benefits from a stable world order where, where he can project Chinese influence through market penetration, through economic stability. And Putin really likes to create chaos. And so it wouldn't surprise me if, and he's not he's not a strategist. I mean, I don't I don't think Putin's not an idiot, but he's also not a brilliant strategist as some people, you know, make him make him out to be. So it wouldn't surprise me if sometime in the coming weeks we saw some sort of escalation in Ukraine uh, from Russia's side and to just try to put pressure on the U.S. and the rest of the West that he knows is uh, extremely distracted at the moment. So something to watch. Um, this is really, really complicated. I mean, it's it, like you, Paul, it's sort of, you know, we're building the plane as we're flying it, like trying to figure out these scenarios in our heads one by one and what that might mean for the broader international uh you know, complexities of the international system. It's really difficult stuff, but yeah, it's it's certainly something to watch, I think, in the coming coming weeks. I would certainly watch oversight, the overflights over the Black Sea would be one of my kind of potential black swans. Of course, one can only speculate what goes on behind closed doors when Mr. Xi Jinping and Mr. Vladimir Putin meet. Uh, but unfortunately, I think that will have to be a topic for a next episode as we are running out of time. Rachel and Paul, thank you so much for joining me today. Goodbye. Thank you. Thank you.